The Rural Health Voice, Episode 109, The Appalachian Syndemic. Welcome to The Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. What is a syndemic? Lee Storrow, Senior Director of External Affairs at the Community Education Group, joined me to discuss the confluence of HIV, HCV, and the opiate crisis, and what is being done to address it. So welcome, Lee. Thanks, Beth. I'm really excited to be here chatting with you today. Uh, We're happy you were able to find time in your schedule to join us. So I was looking at your website, and you're listed as a Senior Director of External Affairs at the Community Education Group. What does a Senior Director of External Affairs do? You know, that's a really great question. And there are there are probably some days that I'm not sure I know what the answer to that <laughs> question is. It's been a bit of a running joke, my title at the organization. I joined Community Education Group more than two years ago, have a history of doing work in the HIV and hepatitis field, primarily in the South and Appalachia. Um, I had the good fortune. I've been friends. I've known our executive director, A. Tony Young, for a number of years. And as our work at CEG was ramping up, we had a conversation about me coming to CEG and taking on the role of policy director, which was my role when I first started. And over the course of that year, you know, that job just kept becoming more and more amorphous and taking on more communications work, more event planning. And I was leading our grant making through our Appalachian Partnership Fund. And one day, Tony just told me, she was like, you know, Lee, it's time for a title change. And if you know CEG, if you know a Tony Young, once she gets an idea in her head, that idea sticks. I think we sort of like spitballed a couple things out. You know, we were talking about a role in external affairs. And like three days later, she just started using it. I just started using it. And, and there we go. So um, the, the more formal answer is that I'm really honored and pleased to get the opportunity to, to lead a lot of our external facing work. Community Education Great. Group has a mission of combating the syndemic of HIV, viral hepatitis, substance use disorder. We're headquartered in West Virginia, but working across the Appalachian region. And so I support our policy team. We've got phenomenal staff led by Trisha Christensen, our policy director, but also still lead that grant making work work with our communications team, help really tell the story in an external in an external setting of the work that we do. And we realized that all of that work needed to come together kind of in one cohesive umbrella as best we could make it. And for more information about Community Education Group, I would refer people back to episode 77 because we did in- indeed interview A. Tony Young back then. The interview with Tony is actually one of the things that led me to start um, listening a little bit to y'all's podcasts. And I think, you know, having the opportunity to think about how all of us in rural settings in the South and Appalachia tell the story of what we do and doing it in innovative ways and new ways is one of the really exciting tasks I get to do at this job. And during COVID, public health folks talked about epidemics and pandemics, but CEG is focusing on a syndemic. And you, you brought this word up before, but Let's talk more about what is a syndemic and what does it mean and what are you focusing on? A couple years ago, when I used the word syndemic, friends outside of the public health space, I think often would would sort of pause and be like, what are you talking about? That, That super jargony, tell me more about that. 
And I think it's it's a word and a framing and a philosophy that's certainly getting more attention. Although, although you know, again, those of us in a public health space, we're always probably in our own little bubble and need to be intentional about language. We strategically decided we should begin using the word syndemic for a couple reasons. One, definition, right? Syndemic means that you have sort of interlocking factors, interlocking disease states that all all coexist together, that impact each other. And so I talked earlier about HIV, viral hepatitis, and substance use disorder. When we're talking about this infectious disease space in Appalachia, we are doing a giant disservice if we don't talk about these in an interlocking way. Folks who are at higher rates of getting HIV are absolutely at higher rates of getting hepatitis, and a lot of that's fueled by injection drug use, right? It's fueled by the opioid epidemic, and we can't talk about these things in a siloed way. Let's be honest, though. One of the reasons we talk about and lead with the phrase syndemic and a syndemic approach is we found that each of these in isolation, both in a public setting space and the political space, they, they're really stigmatized. When I lead in a state like North Carolina or West Virginia with HIV, you know, in, in a lot of settings that can sometimes shut down the conversation, right? You know, we would like to think that those of us working in LGBTQ health and in infectious disease and substance use disorder health and health for people who use drugs, that we, we have come a long way, but we're still not there. And I think our executive director and our team found that talking about this work in Appalachia was really, really hard, and we were getting a lot of doors shut. But we noticed that when we talked, when we led in a different way, right, when we led and used the word syndemic, the same thing happened that just happened with you a couple minutes ago. You said, well, wait, what is that? Tell me more about that. And you, and you were almost more open to hearing about the data, hearing about the epidemiology, when you thought of these bigger social factors, that didn't make you just instantly think about like gay sex, right, or about injection drug use. Um, I think that's one of the one of the things that's led us also to frame a lot of our work about Appalachian culture and heritage. We in conservative parts of the country have to frame and think about the work that we are doing in a way that that meets everybody where they are, and the words we use really matter, and how we frame the conversation really matters. And sometimes that opened doors to bring other people into the conversation that might not have been willing to if we framed it a different way. Sure. Because, you know, for someone like me growing up in the 80s and 90s, back then we were led to believe that HIV was something that only gay men got. And it was even nicknamed the gay plague. So how has that conversation shifted with your work? I mean, it's had to have shifted when we talk about the Appalachian region, right? You know, you. I think you know this, but all, all our listeners may not. You know, the Appalachian epidemic of HIV, again, I'm using epidemic because we're talking about HIV in isolation right now, is one of the most alarming in the country. Kanawha County, Cabell County in West Virginia have some of the highest rates, right? They may not have the highest number of cases, right? When we're talking about highest number, right, we're still talking about major metropolitan cities. But when you look at the overall rate of an HIV diagnosis and hepatitis diagnoses in some of these smaller Appalachian counties, we're seeing really high rates. And that's because of the opioid epidemic. It's because, you know, it, there are a lot of other factors that go into it, but we have high rates of transmission due to injection drug use. 
And I think that's really surprising for some people um, when they realize like, we've got to be doing HIV work in West Virginia. We've got to be doing HIV work in Appalachian, Virginia, North Carolina, and Tennessee. Um, because this, you know, really is a virus, right? It doesn't discriminate. It can in many ways impact everyone. And we've got to be really smart about how we go about it. Well, and it's also changed how we think about the opioid epidemic because, you know, when, when we first started working on this, it was misuse of prescription drugs, which are usually taken orally. But with the various regulations uh, in place at the state level and even the national level on how those drugs are prescribed, people who became addicted are having to turn to illicit drugs and injectable drugs. The story of the opioid epidemic is a really tragic story. Um, it's a story of family members, hardworking folks who thought they could depend on medications that their medical providers told them were safe, that they depended on pharmaceutical companies telling them drugs were safe, and they got addicted to incredibly addictive medications that really changed communities. Um, you know, this is a story that I think, thankfully, is pretty well known. You know, one of the things in my first year in this job of spending a lot of time in Charleston in the state capitol was talking to both Democratic and Republican lawmakers. And, you know, folks said, hey, I know somebody who got addicted. And, and that changes the conversation. I think we've always known that, right? When this is able to be personal to a decision maker, to a, you know, federal administrator, to a secretary of health, to a lawmaker, it does change things. And in a state like West Virginia, just about everybody knows someone who got addicted. And I think it helps them understand that this is not a moral failing, right? This does not mean that someone was a bad person if they got addicted. It means that, you know, they face some really challenging circumstances and an industry and a corporation that made money off the backs of their pain and suffering. So what is CEG doing to educate healthcare providers and others about the need to address these three as a syndemic instead of separately? We especially wanted to make sure we spent some time today to talk about the syndemic summit, the Appalachian syndemic summit that CEG is the lead planner on, but we brought together folks from across all 13 states of Appalachia. If folks don't know listening, you know, there's a lot of definitions about Appalachia, a lot of geographic lines, you know, there's the Appalachian Trail. When we're talking about Appalachia, we're talking about a definition defined by the Appalachian Regional Commission. 423 counties stretching from northern Alabama and Mississippi all the way to rural parts of New York. And we're going to be bringing together that entire region in May 2024 in West Virginia for a three-day conversation about what we're doing to address this pandemic. We're really excited that one of the things that actually, look, I've planned a lot of meetings, right? And some of my old HIV work in North Carolina, I planned summits, I planned conferences. One thing that I actually think is like really different that we're doing is we've got about 13 key partner organizations who are co-hosting this event with us. Virginia Rural Health Association is one of those organizations. So is the West Virginia Rural Health Association, the Kentucky Rural Health Association, and the Maryland Rural Health Association. But we've got also experts in kind of each of these three siloed areas, all of whom are doing their work in a way that addresses syndemics. You know, in the HIV space, I've got some really good friends who I know from AIDS Alabama, the Southern AIDS Coalition, and NCAIDS Action Network working with us. 
We've got Ohio Harm Reduction, who is one of the leaders on drug policy and harm reduction in one of our Appalachian states. We've got a couple academic centers, which I'm really excited about. The University of Rochester is representing our partners in rural New York. They've got a technical assistance center that's really doing some phenomenal work in the substance use space. We've got the West Virginia School of Osteopathic Medicine. And so each of these organizations is able to bring different expertise, talents, and thoughts to help facilitate this conversation. You know, I'll be honest and transparent amongst friends. It's one of our ways we knew we'd get enough people there to make it worth it, right? When you do that first event, like your greatest fear is that you're not going to have enough folks show up, right? And so one of the things we said was like, let's do this with the people who we are know are super smart, are doing the work, have something to contribute, and are going to like bring four friends in the van with them. Um, we are really excited about this event. It's one of the projects I'm leading for next year. And for folks listening in, you know, think about May 19th, 20th, and 21st. Think about joining us in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia at the Greenbrier. We'd love to have you be part of this conversation about really what it takes for all of us to roll up our sleeves and do this work together. Sure. And we'll make sure we include a link to the event in our show notes. But you said you're always worried about what if nobody shows up, who should attend? We already have registered leaders from health departments across the region. I think the first registration that came in to give a shout out to some of our favorite partners are four staff members from the Burke County, North Carolina Health Department who are doing really impressive work with their opioid settlement dollars, who are really leading that work in Western North Carolina. Absolutely providers, right? If you're on the front lines of prescribing, of working in Appalachia, in any of these 13 states, would love to have you. You know, we want advocates, right? And advocates look a lot of different ways. Folks who are living with HIV, who are living with hepatitis or have been cured of hepatitis. If you're someone who's been working in a harm reduction space, if you have lived experience struggling with substance use of any way. That lived experience of folks who are really in the fields with us doing the work, sharing their personal stories, learning from each other is one of the things that's going to help us address this work in a new way. We're also really trying to push and think about this as a workforce issue. So often one of the stories we hear is that for folks working in rural communities, like if you don't have a job, you're not going to get your health needs met. And we know that folks who have struggled with substance use, who've maybe spent time in incarceration, who are living with HIV, who are struggling with other public health issues, you know, sometimes need an extra leg up to think about how to enter the workforce in a recovery-friendly way. We were just chatting this week, so it's on front of mind for me, with Jobs and Hope West Virginia, which is the signature program in West Virginia trying to do exactly that, trying to help folks struggling with substance use find employment. They're going to be there. They're sending some of their staff. I could go on and on and on, but I think the answer is right. We want you, and we're going to have some key decision makers as well in the room from the CDC, from the Appalachian Regional Commission, are looking at doing some key listening sessions with public health leaders so that folks you know, in the halls of power in D.C. and our individual states can hear from folks on the ground. And we're going to write a plan. We're going to write a plan for what it's going to take for Appalachia to keep. There's some great work happening in this region, and we got to ramp it up if we're really going to meet the goals to bring parity for the region, both in terms of jobs and public health that the rest of the nation has. So those are the people who you want to attend. What do you think they'll get out of it? You know, I think that question is really a two-way street, 
right? We are building a really exciting agenda and curriculum, and our partners on that co-host committee are helping inform that with us. We had a fun conversation when we were thinking about framing this agenda around tracks, right? Like one of the things you often do at conferences is there's like the A track, the B track. We were like, well, do we create the HIV track, the viral hepatitis track, and the substance use track? And then we're like, wait a minute, like, no, right? Like, that's the exact opposite of what we're supposed to be doing. So have informally set up some flow to say, like, well, this, we're going to focus on, like, legislation and policy change, right? This here, we're going to focus on some of these things we were talking about earlier, economic development and job readiness. So we do expect that folks are going to come and, like, leave with content, right? Leave with we are going to be putting forward, I would say, some of the f- most aggressive thought leaders in the field who are pushing the envelope for Appalachia, which is what we need, right? We need folks who are willing to break the model and think really differently about the solutions to these problems. But I also think we're all going to learn from each other. You and I have been at conferences, a couple conferences together, right? We all know sort of some of the stereotypical flow of like, you got your vendor table, you've got your keynote, you've got your plenary, you've got your workshop tracks. But as I said earlier, like we're really thinking about how do we do some stuff that fosters that collaboration, brainstorming and new ideas that often can really be what lets people leave these gatherings and say, hey, I got it, right? I've got this new idea I'm going to bring to the community. We were just on with CMS and HRSA, two federal official um, departments who do public health work talking to them about like, let's have y'all come and do a listening session with the community, right? So folks are going to be gathering and gaining new information, but they're also going to be funneling their truth and information and knowledge back to decision makers that's going to help inform the work. We've also got what we hope are a couple, you know, surprises up our sleeve, looking at maybe one or two like signature Appalachian entertainers, musicians, things like that to have there. We still have the flame alive that Dolly Parton is going to come to the summit. I don't think she's going to make it in person, right, if we're being honest with ourselves. But, you know, maybe she's going to just drop in for like a virtual say hi, right? Maybe we're going to get her up on the screen. But got some other ideas of, of signature leaders from the culture space, from the music space. And we're also just going to have some fun. The Greenbrier is a destination in and of itself. It is the largest hotel in West Virginia, one of the largest, you know, resort complexes in the country. And occasionally people sort of ask me like, hey, that's an expensive venue. Why are we doing it at the Greenbrier, right? Like, why not at like, you know, the Fairfield Suites down the road in Lewisburg or somewhere else in the region? And I think one of the visions that that our leadership, that Tony Young, that our team has talked about is like, This is one of the most important conversations for Appalachia right now. It is one of the most urgent needs for this region. And that's where those conversations happen. The West Virginia Chamber of Commerce's annual meeting is at the Greenbrier. Their Women's Summit is at the Greenbrier. The Republican Caucus in D.C. just this week announced they're doing one of their retreats at the Greenbrier. It is absolutely the type of venue where some of West Virginia and the entire region's most prominent important gatherings have happened. And we believe that substance use disorder, HIV, hepatitis are critical issues for the state. And we need to be able to have that conversation there. So for some folks, it's a little out of the way. The airport isn't that big. 
There is an Amtrak station. We're big fans of trains at CEG. So the White Sulphur Springs Amtrak station is right across the street from the Greenbrier. You know, Beth, you and I have both put a lot of miles on our car driving across the states that we cover. I promise you it'll be worth it. It may take a little bit more time and energy to get yourself there, but we want you to join us in May 2024. Oh, I'll certainly be there. But you mentioned that, you know, that's an expensive venue. Are there scholarships available? We're lucky to have a number of corporate sponsors, of foundation partners, of folks who've said to us, like, this is important. We're going to help sponsor the event, come and give you a little money for an exhibit table. So we do have sponsorships available, um, you know, can tier that from just covering registration to covering some travel and lodging. The big thing that we're pitching and telling everybody about that does always like catch folks' attention is we were able to negotiate for that Sunday and Monday night for the for the conference. We'll be beginning late Sunday afternoon so folks can make Sunday a travel day. You know, we got a rate at the Greenbrier under $100. And I will tell you, a couple of my colleagues have said, honestly, I've never been to the Greenbrier. And the fact that I could get that rate for lodging, like that, that's the thing that got me there. And you know what? If that's what gets you in the door, that's great, right? Like, we'll for sure take it. But we know a lot of us working at nonprofits, working at health departments or volunteers, you know, we may not have a lot of resources. So wanted to have a lodging rate that was attractive to folks. If you wind up being a little late and miss out on that lodging rate, there are some other hotels in the area. We do want to do as best as we can to help cover registration costs and cover some travel costs for folks as well. So the link for the summit is in the the notes of this podcast episode. If you go to communityeducationgroup.org and check out programs and resources, you can see a link to the full Syndemic Summit page which has registration, has abstract information, and has scholarship information. So check out all the ways you can help facilitate and participate in the event. Now, Virginia Rural Health Association, of course, hosts our annual Rural Health Voice Conference in November. And I know even with registration fees and exhibits, hosting events can be expensive. How are you funding this project? We are really lucky that already a lot of organizations have stepped up to the table and said, we want to be a part of this. We're going to help sponsor it. Shout out to our partners at Gilead Sciences, who are going to be a major contributor, the company that manufactures a good amount of HIV medications. We've also got a partnership with Medscape Education we're really excited about. We've actually been doing a lot of work with Medscape Education. Uh, We are partners with them in announcing and promoting the release of their new education curriculum that's featuring expert perspectives on the prevention and management of viral hepatitis. They've got a great curriculum that's intended for primarily, you know, medical providers, right, for infectious disease specialists. Some funding that they've provided to us is going to help support the conference. And they're actually in May of next year going to be announcing a new round and a new hepatitis curriculum. So the timing's really great for them to be there. Just to give a shout out and plug to them, go to medscape.org and you can check out all of the free curriculum they have. The one we're really promoting through this initiative is they're targeting viral hepatitis, a roadmap for providers curriculum. And, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you're like, Beth and Lee are having so much fun. I want to go have fun with them at the Greenbrier. I want to support this event. Please, again, go check out that website. Drop me a note. You know, would love to include you, whether it's as a sponsor, an exhibitor, or anything else for the event. Sponsor, exhibitor, participant, and, if I remember correctly, a poster submission. Isn't that an option? Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Make sure you get your academic posters in so you can list that on your 
CG as well. So, aside from the summit, are there other CG projects our listeners should know about? We may not have enough time to go through the many, many initiatives that CEG is a part of. You've heard the name of my boss and our executive director, Tony Young, several times today. I have been so lucky to work with Tony for a couple years. And one of the things when you work for a visionary leader is sometimes you've got a lot of projects you've got to tackle. So, um, you know, one of the things that's really exciting at CEG is I think we are a little unique. You know, we we don't necessarily provide direct service work. We are your policy and advocacy champions. We're your conveners. We bring all the folks together. We're your technical assistance providers. And so, you know, sometimes folks ask, like, we're not providing HIV testing, right? I'm not out in the field running an HIV support network. But what we're going to do is help those folks do that work really, really well. Through our strategic grant making, you know, referenced that earlier, um, have been thrilled to reinvest more than $2 million across the Appalachian region to address HIV, hepatitis, substance use disorder, and COVID especially over the last couple of years. Our policy team has been doing some on-the-ground work in Kentucky, helping modernize HIV self-testing laws working with the HIV Criminalization Coalition in Tennessee, working to try to decriminalize um, HIV in Tennessee. In South Carolina, our policy team is active in efforts to expand Medicaid. In North Carolina, we've been part of the work that successfully expanded Medicaid just a couple weeks ago, which is really exciting. Have, Have been the leaders in North Carolina on a coalition to help modernize their state's Good Samaritan law. You know, our goal and our challenge is that in in all 13 states of Appalachia, where these issues are active, you know, you're going to in some way or other have CEG helping push the envelope and make our states a healthier place. So the last question, the question I ask all my guests, if you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and health care in rural America? Getting the resources to Appalachian rural counties is what's important. Right. Like we know we have so many federally qualified healthcare centers and heck, just free and charitable clinics who are operating with barely an extra nickel and dime to run together. So sometimes it really is about money. We know what works to address HIV, to address viral hepatitis. Unfortunately, there's still a lot of shame in this space. But if we could fully fund the harm reduction orgs on the ground and the clinics who are providing this direct service day in and day out, That's not going to change it completely, but if we had the political will to fund public health the way we know we need to, I think we'd make a big difference. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Beth. It was a blast. Always fun chatting with you. That's Lee Storrow with his desire for a robust public health funding. If you want to be part of the conversation about rural health, join Lee, myself, and others at the summit in May. Event links are in the show notes. The Virginia State Office of Rural Health is dedicated to fostering collaboration, sharing information, providing technical assistance, coordinating rural health interests, and improving the recruitment and retention of rural health professionals throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia.